0: Nobody values groundwater because they can't see it. And in many parts of the world, it's not really clear who owns it. And it's not really clear who has a right to use it. But if you actually look at the numbers, you would see that most people in the world use groundwater for their drinking water every day of their lives. And yet, we neglect it utterly. In two respects, we over pump it. We take more water out of the ground than goes back in. And the two classic examples, one is the Indo-Gangetic Plain of the northern part of the Indian subcontinent. And the second one is in the North China Plain, where the same thing happens.
1: Welcome to another episode of Liquid Assets, where we talk about the intersection of business, policy, and technology. As it relates to water. I'm your host, Robbie Crani, and today we have an amazing guest for you, Mr. John Lane.
0: Hello, my name's John Lane, and I'm the chair of the scientific program committee at World Water Week in Stockholm. John is the
1: chair of the scientific committee at the World Water Week. And I just want to hand it over to you, John, so I don't steal the mic anymore. Can you give us just a short little introduction of who you are, what you do, and what your background is?
0: Yeah, thanks a lot, Robbie. A long time ago, I'm an engineer by profession, and I've spent most of the last 40 years working particularly on water supply and sanitation for poor people in developing countries. In recent years, I've moved on more from a fieldwork aspect, more to looking at global water policy issues. And so in my work as chair of scientific program committee for World Water Week, I'm concerned with the little aspects of water in all parts of the world.
1: Beautiful. And... Let's, let's kind of, let's just take that all the way back from the beginning. So for the last 40 years, you're, you're a trained engineer by profession. What kind of engineer are you? Civil engineer. Civil engineer. Okay. And out of, out of college, did you go straight into water? What, what, what was this journey into water? Did you start building bridges first as a civil engineer? How did that, how did that
0: start to? Funnily enough, I did start designing bridges. That was a good guess. I'm from the UK and I got a, an assignment from the company I work for to work in Zambia on conventional civil engineering work. And I met my wife there, who was also working in Zambia at that time. And through her, I came to realize that the best thing I could do with my professional life was to dedicate my work to poor people in developing countries. And so I decided that water was the area where I would concentrate. And so I've been working specifically on water since then. And, you know, I've just been very lucky to have had that 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 career well I still am lucky so that's that's in a nutshell and and that gave me a real privilege of working and living in other people's cultures we lived I mentioned zambia we've also spent some years in nepal we've spent many years in malawi and I've been very lucky to be able to travel widely particularly in sub-saharan africa and in south asia in relation to working on water to me that's a it's a privilege and I hope that that helps me to gain some you know, breadth of perspective on some of the real topics that we'll be chatting about.
1: Entirely. Yeah. And just to kind of set the set the stage for what we will be talking about, can you walk us through that journey as you were in Malawi, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, in Southeast Asia? I guess two, two questions there. One, I, I love to kind of dig deep into why people do what they do. It's, it's just so interesting, especially in the world of water, of what drove people to get in the world of water. What was that Inflection point, right when you when you first went down to Zambia, and then secondarily, I'd love to, from your point of view, understand what you were seeing in Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia at that time with, with water issues, because I think that's going to be a great setting of the stage of kind of what we're seeing
0: today in in 2023 and the work that you're doing today.
1: But um, yeah, yeah, those, uh,
0: those are two questions. Okay, the first one's very easy. Why do I do this work? I do it because I feel. Really, deeply, that a life well- lived is a life spent dedicated to helping other people. I, I'm not a religious person at all. that's just simply my my personal code of morals or, or and ethics. and I'm fortunate that I've had a professional education and training as a civil engineer, and that is a vocation that can be extremely useful to other people. and so that's that's why I've made that that dedication and i've right through my whole career my motivation in any particular job I might have been doing at that time has been very simple it's it's to use my skills and knowledge such as they are to benefit other people and then on the on the second issue what what was the you know what what are the kind of predominant feelings that one has you know with, with a background living in the UK originally which is a very privileged background by global standards it's a country with a high, GDP per head, it has high living standards, you know, everybody has water and sanitation. It's, It's been profoundly important for me to know and to experience it firsthand that actually, you know, I'm one of a tiny minority, really, uh, and that the majority of people in the world either don't have access to uh, safe uh, uh, and reliable water, particularly to safe sanitation. Uh, they may have drinking water and sanitation but they may not have good access to water resources in general for example for agriculture and so it's not only about the looking at the people who live in a particular country and, and, and kind of generalizing about a, a whole country but it's also looking within a country particularly if you take a, a country with a very large population and and inevitably within a, a large country you will find that some Sections of society, whether that's individual people or whether that's companies or whatever, have have privileged access to resources and water. Of course, is a prime example of that. And so, you know, as the years have gone by, I've 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 just maintained or tried to maintain that determination that when we're looking, which I spend my time doing now, looking at water global global level water policy issues, if you like, that that we need to keep in the forefront of my, our minds the, the people who are disadvantaged in whatever way it might be. And, and therefore, as we formulate policies or as we advise political leaders or business leaders to formulate their policies, that to me is the fundamentally important point, is, is service to people who are disadvantaged. And then in the last few years, as with many of my colleagues, The whole subject of global heating and climate has become really important to me and i think we'll talk about that during this conversation but but just as a start let me say that now a lot of my focus a lot of my thinking relates to if you look at a question that's to do with water, that is also a question which is to do with climate change by definition and therefore I feel that whether we're looking at sanitation or drinking water or water resources management or whatever it might be, we no longer have the luxury of studying that topic in isolation. We have to know that that topic is part of a bigger picture. And to me, the ultimate big picture is the future of humanity on the planet. And therefore, the whole topic of of climate change and global heating is something which is profoundly important to all of us. And that will come through in our conversation.
1: Yeah, entirely. Why don't why don't we actually go ahead and, and jump right jump right into that? Cause you've opened up a perfect topic. Can you can you kind of unwrap that a little bit more of, of of against the work that you're already doing, working with policy members and also just for the audience at the kind of largest scale, let's kind of just get down to first principles, right? Why why is water related to climate change, related to, to global heating? how how would you explain that?
0: Yeah, thanks. Good question. The the first thing that strikes people is that you can talk in an abstract way about the average global temperature. You know, we see this all the time in in media headlines that that, that since the industrial age started, the average global temperature has now gone up by one point one or one point two degrees, and and the scientists and the politicians are working on trying to limit that to maybe one point five degrees or in a really bad bad case 2 degrees and it's quite difficult just as an individual person to say well hey what's what's the big deal with that outside my door the temperature goes up by 20 degrees between summer and winter you know what's what's 1.1 degree but the answer is that the rather small increase it is translated through the medium of water because water is 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 what is the manifestation of global climate. Climate means what's happening to water. Where is it raining? How much is it raining? Do we have droughts? Do we have floods? Do we have hurricanes? Do we have storms? All of those involve water, either too much or too little, in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so that apparently innocuous one degree or one and a half degrees translates into enormous turbulent and dramatic changes in climate patterns and water is the medium through which people are offended are, are, are affected. So the vast majority of impacts on people come from the flooding or from the drought rather than directly from the increase in average temperature. Okay, so so that depicts water as uh, as part of the mechanism through which climate change occurs and impinges on us. But but what interests me in particular is to turn that around the other way and say, well, what are the characteristics of water and water management that can help us to actually reduce that impact? Mm-hmm. Where are uh, activities that we are currently doing that can actually help to throw down the increase in global heating, for example, or... What are we doing in relation to those big climate cycles that would enable us to not just react to, but somehow to be able to help them to be less impactful or less dangerous, both for us and for ecosystems around the world?
1: I'm getting, I'm just seeing civil civil engineer mechanics here at play too, right? If you think about a, if you think about a mass spring dashboard or a bridge. Right. If you if you have these systems diagrams and you get a really, really big wave that goes out of control, it's the after effects of what's happening versus the actual one to two degrees yourself. Right. So it's it's all of these 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 elements, these characteristics, these parameters of what the output is of the systems diagram that ends up causing the problems. And so if you're if you're looking at what what are the characteristics around water and water management to help be more preventative, proactive or even decrease the impact versus being reactive, what what is. What is the Pareto of those or like, you know, what are the, what are the top three or top five that we're looking at today and, and how can we focus on those characteristics to use water as a heuristic or as a lens to then combat this, this kind of larger issue?
0: Good. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll give you the top three that are, these are water related activities that we can do that will reduce greenhouse gas emissions and therefore slow down global heating. Number one. Is how we grow rice And you might say Hang on This guy's a water guy What does he know About growing rice And the answer is I don't personally Know a lot about it But I know some people Who do And the essential point Is that If you If you flood Your rice fields Which you have to do For the young seedlings To start growing Okay But if you keep Your rice fields flooded All through the growing season The Microbes around the roots of the rice plants give out vast amounts of methane, huge amounts of methane. We don't really know how to measure the amount of methane, but it's a lot. Whereas if you dry the rice paddies, the rice will still grow perfectly well. You'll get the same yields of tonnage per hectare, but those microbes will not give off that methane. And so by modifying your irrigation, which is water management, you can still produce the same amount of rice but you can reduce enormously the amount of methane going into the atmosphere that's number 1 number 2 is is human shit sanitation wastewater treatment whatever you want to call it but, but the 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 decomposition of any sort of excreta from animals and you know humans are pretty numerous animals it gives off methane no. and We're only just beginning to realize how much of the methane in the atmosphere is actually coming from human shit. And I'll just give you one example of the city of Kampala in Uganda, where recent academic studies over the last three or four years indicating that perhaps one third of the total human greenhouse gas emissions from that city is from the sanitation systems. One third. One third unbelievable One oh my gosh unbelievable. Yeah. You, you know you, you you just would never have thought of that and so now we're beginning to realize that there's something we can do which is that we can design our sewage treatment works or what we call wastewater treatment plants to capture the methane so instead of that methane just going off into the atmosphere we can capture the methane but wait because this gets better if we look at water utilities in general, that's the water supply, but also wastewater treatment, we don't have an exact figure, but it would appear that we are using somewhere between about 3% and 8% of global electricity. Now that is more than almost any single country in the world. It's at least as much as the aviation business. It's at least as much as the shipping business. And my goodness, the Politicians and the media talk about flying and, and shipping, don't they, as sources of the greenhouse gases. But nobody talks about sewage plants, but actually they're comparable. And having captured the methane, we then burn that methane in a controlled manner to create power. And we can create more power by capturing that methane than we are currently using from the national grid. So that's a win-win. We reduce our methane emissions, and we generate the power. Now, that's brilliant, and that's point number two. Point number three is something which has been known for 100 years, which is hydroelectric power, that the greenhouse gas emissions for generating electricity through hydroelectric power are much, much smaller than those from burning fossil fuels. And I mean, it's so obvious, but people do forget that. So that's that's worth mentioning. And if you look at some of the countries where they're, you know, ninety-eight, ninety-nine percent of their power is generated from hydro, Malawi is a good example, Norway is another one. You know, those are saving enormous, enormous quantities of greenhouse gas emissions by the use of hydropower. And I know hydropower is controversial because large dams are complicated and they have social and economic negative impacts. I totally understand that. But I think we need to keep in mind that of all the watery activities we do, that's one of the big three. If we can manage properly the way that we plan and construct hydropower dams, then that can really be a big win. So those are, those would be the three headline items. And there are quite a lot of other water related things that will also reduce greenhouse gases. But those are the big three. Really interesting.
1: That's. Yeah, I, I actually want to I want to touch on those in a second. But is there one in the in the longer list outside of these top three that, for the audience, they'll they'll kind of scratch their head and they'll say, "Hmm, that's that's really interesting." Something that you you came across and saying, "Oh, wow, that's that's a really interesting dependency."
0: Well, well, I I think the sewage works one is the most interesting one, but I've already told you about that one. The other ones are actually a little bit more mundane, to be honest. Because if we look at drinking water supply for example we can we can reduce our energy consumption i mentioned a moment ago that we you know we use a lot of electrical energy for both for the sewage treatment but also for drinking water supply and, and there are lots of ways that we can reduce our power consumption most notably by using less water so so in, increasing the efficiency of water supply reducing leakages all these things they're very boring But they're actually quite useful. You get a lot of small incremental improvements, you know, that add up. And it's also the same with water for agriculture, because let's bear in mind that out of the water that humankind is using, about three quarters of it we're using for irrigation. The Um, remaining quarter is is for industry, for hydropower, for drinking water. Well, maybe that's 2% or 3%. So the actual, out of the water that we're using, drinking water is a small user and agriculture is by far the biggest. And so wouldn't it be great if we could come out with, uh, you know, innovations that relate to irrigation water usage? I I mentioned the point about rice because that's specific to methane emissions. But irrigation in general, even setting aside the benefits on methane emissions, it, it, it can be made so much more efficient, use much less water. There's this phrase about producing more crop per drop. And and yes, people have been working on that for quite well, decades, but there's but there's a lot more we can do. And I think a lot of these modern technologies, are, for example, remote resource monitoring from space. You know, mm-hmm. you, you see all the headlines about satellites, they're spying on us, or, you know, they're gathering data about us. Well, there are some the good news about satellites as well which is my goodness they're really useful to look at the way that water is moving both on the surface but even by deduction how underground water is working and we'll talk about groundwater later I'm sure and therefore helping farmers and irrigation managers to optimize their use of water so as i say that you know that's a, that's also rather a boring subject to other people. It's very interesting if you're an irrigation manager, but it's pretty boring for other people. But, it, but those, those kinds of things reflect an underlying point, which is how valuable water is. You know, water, and, and I've just mentioned that three quarters of it is being used to grow our food. You know, that's fundamental for us all to live, right? Water is, is so valuable to the functioning of human society at all. To be able to feed 8 billion people is so valuable for the industries that serve the needs of all those billions of people. And, and those little examples I was giving of where we can improve our management of water, if we're looking, for example, at mitigating climate change, one can also express those in terms of serving people's social and economic development. Water is one of the fundamental resources available for political leaders, for the private sector, for public sector utilities, for individual farmers and, and local groups to, to generate benefits of all sorts, economic benefits, health benefits, even benefits in terms of peace and security and international cooperation. And, and I, and I think that we as water professionals have been too shy. We've not communicated that very well. I'm sure if we stopped someone in the street outside, either where you are or where I am, or in you know, all around the world, and we said to, you know, how do you feel Water is useful to sustain your level of civilization? You know, people would talk about drinking water and clean water coming out of the taps, of course, and people will talk a bit about irrigation, But but there's a huge amount of of, of fundamental importance that water and water management has that we do not explain to other people, and consequently, if people don't value something, they don't care for it, and that's something that we need to communicate better. Which is that water is valuable for for us all, and therefore, let's care for it. And the more we care for something, the more benefit it will it will give back to us. I want
1: to I want to actually unpack. Two things that you that you said there. One, I definitely want to touch on the groundwater piece. I actually interviewed somebody that was from a, f- from both an agricultural satellite company as well as one that's doing groundwater. I'd love to get your take on that. But the f- the first thing I actually want to talk about is what you just said. Is I feel like water has a messaging problem, right? As a communications problem. Like you said, if you don't value something, then then you're just not going to take importance in it. And so, is there any strategies that that you think about and I know you have and you work with politicians, you work with governments. Is there anything from the governmental side of things that that is gonna change the overall messaging and communication side? Or what do you think if you if you had a magic wand to wave that, you know, here's these three initiatives or two initiatives that we could do to get people more interested in water?
0: Yes. Absolutely. Well there's one actually, which is that the Ruta people of whom I'm one, historically have approached politicians and, and leaders holding our hands out to give us money. You know, our subject is important. We need money to build dams or pipelines or whatever it might be. And so we are placing demands on them. We come to a minister of finance and and we just say, look, we need more money for this. We're, we're important. But you know, that minister of finance, you know, she or he gets people every day through their office door saying that they're, what they're doing is important health you know, education, you name it. And and so I think that's completely the wrong way to approach political leaders. My, my vision of this, and this, as I say, is really one point that covers everything, is if we can go to those political leaders and say, here is a tool that will help you to achieve your aims. It turns the whole dialogue around then, doesn't it? We're not going in with a begging bowl. We're going in offering them a resource. And the obvious example of that is climate change, and we've talked about that a little bit, but let me just mention that when President Biden took office, you recall one of the first things he did on the international stage was to call a climate summit, presidential summit on climate. It was on, you know, virtual, and anyone in the world could watch it. It was on the internet, and I watched it, and it was fascinating. You know, everybody was there. President Xi Jinping was there. World leaders from everywhere, they turned up. And they all talked about their aims to reduce greenhouse gas. None of them said a word about how to adapt to climate change. They were all concentrating on how to stop chi- climate change. And I thought, hang on a minute, what do we talk about as water people? We talk all the time about how to adapt to climate change. We hardly ever say anything about stopping climate change. And so that's what's made me particularly interested in some of these points, like like the rice growing or, or the or the sanitation, you know, every every sewage works can be a power station. Because then we can go back to them and say, look, you're interested in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. You've gone to COP twenty-six and COP twenty-seven, and you're going to COP twenty-eight, and you've made some pretty impressive pledges, and you've set some reasonably good targets for greenhouse gas emission. And I bet you don't know how you're going to do it, but we want to help you. And if you do this with your rice growing, and if you do that with your sewage works, that will help. And and so we're then we're offering water as a tool for them to achieve their goals. And I'm just giving that climate as an example. But the general point is that it's to do with how we approach the relationship that we have with political leaders. And and by extension, in many. Not every country, but in many countries, political leaders are sensitive to the opinions of the people, and they respond because people vote for them. So when I say the way we communicate with with politicians, that also means the way we communicate with the voters and the citizens of those countries. That The same point applies. If we can explain and project that, that water is something that can help them, then I, I think the whole the whole future activity and the global policy level relating to water can change fundamentally
1: I, I i love that so much right you you change from a taking hand to a giving hand because you're right you go in to these politicians to these to these government offices and we we constantly ask for things but what are we if we change the script to giving something you're going to have a much better conversation and a much better potential upside of actually getting that done versus you know asking asking for money it makes exactly. complete sense Yeah, that's right. And and I from a strata perspective, there is everything from local governments, you know, in in the US, we have entire commissions that do wastewater within within the state of California, within and all of these things are so they're not even stacked on top of each other where you have a you know clear-cut state to a city to a county. There's there's water districts that go between two or three cities in themselves that have their entirely on board people that are basically managing that. sure. And so what I was, what I was almost thinking hmm. is, is there a 10 point plan or, you know, th- this, this kind of structured approach where we can go to various different peoples at different levels of government and give the waterboard something that's very similar in scope to what you give the governor, to what you give the president, to what you give the county leader, any, any thoughts about that?
0: Yes, that's absolutely right. And I mean, y- y- your, your thumbnail sketch in the United States would be similar in many countries around the world. If you look in particular at water resources management, that's generally done on a river basin basis, because that's the that's the the engineering logic, of course it is. Yeah. And river basins don't respect human political boundaries. so in in almost every country, not quite every country in the world, but the vast majority, yeah. at least some of their water resources will be shared with their neighbours. And so water resources management, being done on a, on a river basin basis would, would include several countries. I mean, look at the river Nile, complicated. So that's an issue that is, that is international or multinational. It's the same with groundwater, which we'll talk about more in a minute, perhaps because aquifers, although you can't see them with your eye, we can, you know, the scientists can tell us that they underlie several countries. And so if you have an aquifer management board, which you, which you do, then again, that's going to involve people in several countries. So, so you have that multinational layer. And then, as you say, you have a national government and then local governments at various levels. And in different parts of the world, the structures may be different and the responsibilities may be different. You know, For example, does the city council have the responsibility for, for water and for sanitation? You know, sometimes it's different in different places. But, but the underlying point that you make is spot on which is that we need to have technical and policy messaging that will be relevant to all those different sorts of people at those different levels. It's not only a case of talking to the Minister of Finance or the Head of State, important though that is. You're right. We need to be talking at all those different levels, and the messages may be different at at different levels, and they may be different in different parts of the world. You know, I've spoken two or three times in this chat about growing rice. Well, we don't grow rice in the UK, Canada, you know, it's not, it's not relevant here, but there are 2 billion people in the world that live on rice. So it's relevant to a lot of people in a lot of countries. So it, the way I, I kind of think of it is it's like having a, it's like having a song sheet, you know, you might have 10 or 20 songs on your song sheet and, and you're not going to sing the same song to everybody. You know, there might be a song about about rice growing. Uh, you know that you would be talking about in uh, Indonesia, for example. But there might be another song which is about hydropower, which you would talk about somewhere else. But all the point about about wastewater treatment plants, you know, that's relevant primarily in fairly large cities. Of course, you can do things with methane emission even at the household level, but it's more difficult. <laughs> but you're really going to be talking to large city utilities about that. So there's this song sheet with different messages the underlying point is these are tools to help other people to achieve their aims it's like you say we're giving not not receiving and the song sheet is is not universally applicable it's 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 specific to the particular person to whom you want to sing that song
1: yeah yeah in, entirely that that makes total sense and i guess it it all bubbles up back to that climate adaptation as a headline and each each sheet in this in the song sheet points up to that same kind of vertex or that same headline that you that you have. Really interesting. I like that. Let's go ahead and jump to groundwater. I'd love to get. I, I know you brought it up a few times. I'll I'll just I'll leave it there. What do you what do you have to say about groundwater?
0: Yes. Yes. Thanks. I'm, it's a topic that we talk about quite a lot at World Water Week. We, we, I don't want to bore you about how World Water Week functions, but just briefly to say, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a week at the end of August every year and it's in Stockholm. We choose a, an overall theme for each year. For example, this year it's about innovation. Last year it was about value and water and so on. And there may be 200 sessions and most of them will be about that theme. So groundwater, we have had it as a theme a few years ago, but in addition, We talk about it a lot, even if your theme is valuing water or or innovation. Groundwater comes up again and again. And the vital point about it, well, it's really a valuing point, which is that nobody values groundwater because they can't see it. And in many parts of the world, it's not really clear who owns it. And it's not really clear who has a right to use it but if you actually look at the numbers you would see that most people in the world use groundwater for their drinking water every day of their lives many people in the world use groundwater or groundwater has been used to grow the food that they eat every day of their lives and yet we neglect it utterly in in two respects we we over Pump it. We, we're mining water, if you like. We take more water out of the ground than goes back in, and the two classic examples of that that one constantly sees referred to, one is the Indo-Gangetic Plain of the northern part of the Indian subcontinent, where pumping of groundwater is, is, is much more than the, than the replacement from the rainfall and the monsoons, and therefore the water table is, is going down and the second one is in the north china plain where the same thing happens the, the 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 water table is is getting deeper and deeper at a frightening speed so so those are just two examples you know that every other country you know is equally guilty so 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 we are we are abusing that resource if you like it we're not using it sustainably that's for sure So that means that farmers now are getting the benefit of using groundwater, but their children and their grandchildren will suffer because they've used too much. And then the second aspect is that we pollute it either without even knowing about it or knowing but not caring. And so pollution of groundwater is getting worse. And that's a really, really difficult thing to fix because, you know, getting pollution out of water when you're up here above ground and you've got a water treatment plant, well, you can do that. But how do you how do you try to treat water which is in the ground? So so that's the main yeah. thing about groundwater is that people don't value it properly. And but as we've said earlier in this discussion, there's no point in lecturing people about it, saying you don't value groundwater properly. Well, that's not going to work, is it? So so we and I, I this is not me personally, but a lot of water people are very expert in groundwater, and they are now communicating much better about it than they used to. It used to be a very technical subject, hydro, uh, a a kind of subsector of civil engineering, hydrogeologists deal with groundwater. That's what they, what they do every day of their lives. And you know, they're super brilliant people, but they're a bit technical. And, and so you can go to a conference on groundwater and it's a bit nerdy, if I'm allowed Mm. to say that. Very technical. But in the last few years, I'm happy to say that many of those colleagues are beginning to Communicate much better with the general public and you know with, with other other professions about about these problems with groundwater because if you turn it the other way round, you can say, look, if we understand groundwater well enough, of course it's a resource we can use, and if we take care not to pollute it, well, that's fine. It's innately it's it's lovely water, B- but then the other point that derives from groundwater not being very well appreciated or valued is that when you then come to the economics of it and actual pricing of water, groundwater is usually underpriced. And again, the much-quoted example is is the Indo-Gangetic Plain and particularly the part of it which is in India, where for many decades, government policies have been to concentrate on food production, which is fine, and therefore to make groundwater available free of charge to farmers, effectively free of charge, because the electricity is free. So if you're a farmer, okay, you've got to drill a borehole and put in a pump and that costs you money, but the electricity you use is free. And therefore the chances are you're going to be over pumping because why turn the pump off is free. Sure. And, and so that's something that, you know, it's not the fault of the farmer. It's a conscious decision by politicians to prioritize food supply. And I, I wouldn't contradict that. I, I don't think I, I have the right to contradict the importance of growing food, but I would just say to those politicians, please bear in mind that actually you can probably grow just as much food using much less water and the mechanism, the policy mechanism that will do that is by charging for the electricity. So, so groundwater, you know, there are lots of. There are lots of economic and financial aspects to it, which come, come back, they take you back to the doors of politicians at local and national level as well. Totally makes sense. I, I think
1: this groundwater point also relates to something you said earlier around safety and security and peace as well. I'd love to just touch on that for a second, also for the audience. I think back to the communication messaging, right? People may not know that there is a security and peace element to water. Do you have any any examples or things that you're working on or stuff in the past, even case studies of where water has affected peace and and security?
0: Yes. That's a great question because it's a fascinating topic. And uh, you recall that the UN Water Conference in, in New York this March, which was the first UN conference on water since 1977. So for almost everyone in that room, it was the first UN conference on water they'd been to. I was there. I think I only met two people who had been to the last one. The, the organizers of the conference structured it on different topics, and one of them is water for peace and security. So, uh, I think it's fair to say it's an area that as water people we've rather neglected in the past, but we're really concentrating on it more. And uh, the, the essential point is that if we work together by jointly managing our water resources. And as I've mentioned, there are many water resources that cross international boundaries, both above the ground and below. That enables us to get to know our neighbors better. It enables us to relate to each other better, and we can share the water. In many cases, it's done by treaties, and those can be controversial, partly because some of them are historic. I've mentioned the Nile River and some of the treaties governing The usage of water from the river Nile date back, oh, a hundred years, at least. It's complicated because because there are historic elements. But the point is that there's a lot of cause for optimism. I mean, one example is in Israel and in the Palestinian territories where the water professionals have been working together completely under the radar screen as it were of the media and and of the political aspects of it for decades i'm not saying it's perfect there's clearly an unequal power relationship there in if you look at israel and the palestinian territories and so when they agree treaties you can argue about how fair the allocations are but but the important point is that those water professionals you know they're not looking at each other through the sights of a rifle That they're sitting around a table jointly analyzing and and thinking and planning how best to use water resources for the benefits of all their people. And that's such a powerful message. And and as I say, this goes back decades. Other examples uh, are in river basins. I've, I've mentioned the Nile a couple of times, and there's a lot of really good cooperation that does go on among the riparian countries along the River Nile. But you can also look, you know, for example, at the Zambezi. The Zambezi River Basin, you know, includes a large number of countries, and they have some really good mechanisms for talking to each other, for working together on water to see the the joint benefits of it. So you you know you you do get headlines, and I mean, recently in connection with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there's been this big. Big news item of the destruction of the dam on the Dnipro River and all the allegations about how that dam was destroyed. The underlying point is whatever actually happened to destroy that dam, it has become de facto a a weapon of the war. So, So you get headlines about water as a weapon of war. What you don't hear so much about is all the good examples of where water is a resource to prevent war or to reduce the impact of war. The experts on this are, well, there are several around the world, but the Pacific Institute in the United States have been doing terrific work on this for decades on, on uh, analyzing historically back thousands of years, both of those aspects, the impact of war on water and the use of water as a tool of war. And, and the headline lesson is that actually it's very rare that, that wars are fought over water. And it's quite common that water is a, is a, is a source of collaboration and cooperation between countries. So, so for us at at World Water Week in Stockholm, that's, that's a line of thinking and a line of research and a line of communication that we've been carrying on for some time in the past, and, and we will be again in the future, we will be talking a lot more about peace and security and the role that water can play to support it. Beautiful. That's that's amazing.
1: And kind of jumping to actually what you just said, I, I wanted to just quickly cover what is World Water Week for all of our for all of our audience out there too. What how does it work? Is it part of a larger organization? What's 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 the mechanics behind World Water Week?
0: Yeah, thanks very much. Um there's an organization called the Stockholm International Water Institute. It's a it's a, a charitable foundation, a, a non-government organization, which is about thirty years old. And right at the beginning, they they started a very small scientific symposium about water in Stockholm, 1991 was the first year and two or 300 scientists came and they did good things. And then over the years, that's grown into being a, a, an annual conference. As I say, it's always in the last week in August, it's always in Stockholm and it's hosted by that institute. So it, it not a, it's not a political activity. It's not a government activity. It's an independent entity. It, it's grown to, to be a place, people concerned with water in all of its aspects, whether it's drinking water, whether it's water resources management, whether it's ecosystems management, hydrology, water and climate, whatever. They know that they can come there to talk to each other and learn from each other. So. There are scientists, of course, still attending. There are quite a lot of academic people, but I would say the majority are what you might call practitioners, whether they're working in in local government or they're working for non-government organizations. They're people who are actually carrying out water management plans, working for utilities, for example, private sector, they're there. There are a certain number of media there. And then of course, there are political leaders that come year after year and the wonderful thing about the way that CWI has set it up is that CWI creates it as a a neutral platform a place where everybody's welcome to come and and you know free speech applies everyone can give their opinion about these different subjects to do with water there's no there's no central buddy directing to say we have to have a conclusion from this conference which is going to be x y and z it's not like that it's a place to talk, to learn, to share your experiences. And and that's terrific. And until the coronavirus pandemic affected it, we had about three or 4,000 people getting together every year. And, and if you talk, these were senior people from every country in the world. And if you talk to them about what's the role of that week okay. in their working lives, they would say, well, that's where I go and I see my colleagues. And I learn what's new in other parts of the world and I get new partnerships. I make new connections. So it, it has that, it's a powerful social network if you like. Then since the pandemic, it now has a, a strong online element. So you can, you can go to Stockholm, of course you can, and, and be there in person and three or 4,000 people will be there in, you know, three weeks time. And that costs money to, to go because it's running a conference is an expensive thing. And Stockholm's a pretty expensive place to fly to and to stay in. So that's a, that's a problem because it's an expensive place to go to a conference, but you can do it all online, free of charge. Open access, anybody in the world can be there. And I would think about 90% of the sessions at Stockholm are up on the, up on the website, you know, it's, it's happening live. So, so, and you can be interacting. So you can be part of it, wherever you are in the world, free of charge and And the most, to me, the most inspiring aspect of it, uh, and this is really what motivates me to chair the scientific program committee, is that it's changed from being a meeting of water people to being a meeting about water for all people. Mm. And that change has been driven by the top leadership at the foundation. That hasn't come from our scientists and our committee. It's come from the very top. And I think that is so powerful. Because... All these things that we're chatting about now, you and I, are, are about how water is a tool for other people to achieve their aims. And so we've now designed a World Water Week to be a place where anybody can come. People who don't think of themselves as being water professionals, but believe that water is important to them, or they think it might be, they are the people who we want to see there in Stockholm so that they can have all these discussions that you and I are having. And that is really exciting to me. I saw it last year. I'm going to see it this year, next year, even more. The proportion of people who are there in that room is increasing all the time uh, of people who are not conventionally described as water specialists. So that's a 30 year evolution. It'll continue for many years to come. And I think it's, I think it's a wonderful place to be. And as I say, you can be there online and I I, I go back to when we started this chat and you asked me a bit about myself and what motivates me. And and I said, it sounds a bit corny, but I said, what motivates me is helping other people. And to me, the privilege of working as part of CIWI and working on our committee looks at the intellectual content we don't get involved in the the actual administration of the event what we're looking at is the content what's going to be talked about what are the sessions going to be how are they going to tie together and and we're doing that because we want it to be a place for all people to come to to talk about water from their viewpoints so that's world water week in a nutshell
1: thank you that was that was brilliant I'm def- we should definitely put links to that on the on the YouTube and also on the the link to this podcast as well to, to drive people over there a hundred percent.
0: Yeah.
1: Last question that I always love to ask everybody is: Do you have a book, a TV, or a show, or something for the audience that's pivotal to water that kind of changed your viewpoint, or we should pick up?
0: Yeah, that's a good one. There aren't very many books, but actually, describe this area that we've been chatting about: the interface between water and and policy, because it's quite a new idea. There are large, heavy tome on the scientific parts of water. Every year, the UN publishes a World Water Development Report. You know, it's free on the internet, 500 pages long. There's a lot in there. But that's not the answer to your question. So I would say that the number one right at this moment is a brand new book written by someone who happens to be a friend of mine, Peter Glick. Peter is pretty well known in, in water, sorry, very office props there. You know, he's well known in water at the global level and, and in particular within the United States. He, he's associated with the Pacific Institute in San Francisco. And he's just published a book, and I'm going to get the title of it wrong, but it's something like The Three Ages of Water. It's just out. And okay. what he's doing there is he's looking back at the entire history of human civilization through the aspect of water. So he's looking historically, he's looking at the present day and most importantly, he's looking to the future to analyze a lot of these things that you and I have been talking about, about how we can see a pathway in the future whereby the human race will be able to live harmoniously and sustainably on this planet, which is the only home that we have and how... Water and the management of water is integral to that vision for our future. I, I'm slightly putting words in, in Peter's mouth there, but I would recommend people just Google it. And you can maybe put a link, Ravi, in the yeah. in the front. Peter Glick's new book on on the three ages of water. If if someone wants to buy one book and read it, that's the book to buy.
1: Awesome. We should I should actually have him on the podcast to talk about the book. That sounds like a sounds like an amazing interview to have.
0: You, you must, you must have your yeah. padlock or on the, on the podcast. He, he talks brilliantly about many things and uh, he'd be great. Awesome. Perfect.
1: All right, John, well, thanks a ton for coming on Liquid Assets. Thank you for your time for all of you out there. If you're looking on where to find us, you can find us on Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, wherever you get your podcast from. We also have a YouTube channel and follow us on Instagram. John, thank you
0: again for coming on Liquid Assets. Thank you very much for inviting me, Ravi.